welcome to Solution Focus Possibilities Podcast. We want to help you have more productive conversations in whatever area of work or life you find yourselves in. What better way to do that than to invite you into our own conversations as we discuss our solution-focused practice, our different experiences and findings. We hope you find this helpful, useful and inspiring. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for being on our podcast. Hi. Oh, it's lovely to be here and see you all. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, Just to get an insight into your kind of typical day, if you weren't here with us on this podcast, what would your kind of Monday normally look like? What would you be doing? Okay, so at the moment I'm splitting my time between teaching at City University, so teaching speech and language therapy students and research. And my research at the moment is mostly looking at solution-focused speech therapy for people who've had a stroke and had language difficulties after their stroke. And also right at the moment, because we're still in lockdown, um, I'm also combining that with homeschooling. So it's quite busy my Mondays at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, We, we were just saying before we were recording and before Ben came that we've timed this perfectly so that broadband should survive any homeschooling. Yes, it's just at the end of the school day. So, yeah. Um, my children are yeah. very good at the moment and very quiet. <laughs> good, good, good. So obviously, you know, the thing that we really want to talk about is this research. Uh, and we've, we've all got loads of questions about it. Uh, but before we do that, let's just get a bit of a idea of who you are and what you kind of do. So could you kind of introduce yourself, tell us a bit about what you do? Um, and how did you first kind of become interested in uh, the solution-focused <clears throat> approach. Sure. So I trained as a speech therapist about 20 years ago now, um, and it was when I was first starting to work with um, people who'd had a stroke in the community that I became aware of how hard it is to live with a stroke and how it turns people's lives completely upside down and everything they thought they knew about what they, their future and what they were hoping for is, is turned on its head. And I was working particularly with people who've got language difficulties, so aphasia. So that's where the part of the brain that processes communication has been damaged by the stroke. Um, and what they'll typically say is, I, I know what I want to say. And it's in, it's in there, it's in my head, it's just getting it out, it's getting the words. And how frustrating that was and upsetting and how it sort of disrupted relationships and someone's whole sense of identity. Um, so people can have quite mild aphasia, it's more sort of tip of the tongue stuff. And there's a spectrum right through to very severe phases. People have really have very limited words um, that they can use. And also it can affect comprehensions, how easily people understand language and reading and writing. So it was when I first started working with people with aphasia that I started to think about the more sort of psychological aspects of my of my role. Um, and that led, and, and the social impact of living with aphasia. So that led for me to do a PhD looking at um, social support after a stroke and that was working with people who had the language difficulties also people who didn't have a language difficulties in seeing um listening to their experiences and i think uh and what kind of social support they really valued what tended to happen to their social networks so social networks are, are vulnerable after a stroke and particularly sort of friendships non-kin contact um and the kind of psychological impact of that and, and there was I, I had the privilege, really, of, of walking around London, interviewing lots of different people after their stroke for, for a year of my life, and people were very generous with their time telling me their stories. And there was this a sort of vicious cycle of people feeling quite withdrawn and not wanting to go out and, and see people or participate, and because they weren't getting that social contact, becoming even more withdrawn. It's, it's, and it made me feel that I wanted to look at interventions which might uh, reverse that way so more of a virtuous cycle so what, what would help people to feel that they wanted to start to to participate again after the, with, the, with their life again after the stroke whether there was an intervention that might enable people with stroke and aphasia to, to live well with it and at the time when I finished my PhD there wasn't a great deal of evidence around psychological therapies for people with aphasia because mostly people with language difficulties are um, excluded from stroke research looking at, at psychological well-being so their voices are not really heard. And I think there was a kind of um, uh, an idea that 
perhaps someone with aphasia is not really going to benefit from a psychological talking therapy because it's 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 dependent on on, on language and that's that's their disability so uh, yes but we also knew that people with aphasia are much more likely to have depression than 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 people who don't have aphasia after a stroke so it, it was there are um there was there was a need there to think about well what, what can we do to to adapt psychological therapy so that they are accessible to this client group so i guess mm. that was the start point for my research and my mm. thinking about psychological therapies um and i guess i was drawn to solution flexibility therapy partly because um before i did my phd i did a brief three-day training with kitch burns uh who is wonderful and very well known as a speech language therapist interested in solution flexibility therapy and so I, I i just started doing a little bit of solution flexibility therapy with clients um before i started my phd so it was all through when i was doing these interviews i was thinking oh i wish i could do a bit of solution flexibility therapy with some of the people i was i was interviewing but that wasn't my role at that point but it was a pleasure after the after the, when i finished my phd to to do the the training at brief so i did the four-day training at brief at that point and to get some money to do this first little study um looking at whether it was possible to see if solution flexibility therapy might work with people with aphasia and um that, that was yeah that was a really lovely study yeah. and it was quite like is it possible at all to adapt this therapy and i had my friend delivering this therapy is this a good fit with me and a good fit with my values and what i want from, from, from being a therapist um so yeah that was a, a a lovely, a lovely study, and we got a big thumbs up from all five participants who said yes. Go and get some more money. Do do the bigger study. So, um, and uh, I really enjoyed being a therapist on that project. Um, so yeah, that we were then. It was it was relatively hard to get the bigger chunk of money to do the bigger study, but we're very grateful to the Stroke Association because they then um, funded a four-year research project, mm. which we've just come to the end of. So it's a good time to have this podcast because yeah. I, we've just come towards the end of that four-year study. Um, oh yeah, grateful to the Stroke Association. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, just to just kind of very kind of basics here. Um, could you just kind of just tell us a bit more about what aphasia is and is that different from is that um different from normal strokes or is that an addition to strokes that a complication later on down the line just for people have no idea what we're really talking about what what is it so um strokes very common uh i think it's the most common form of adult disability in the uk um and about 30 percent of people who have a stroke will have some form of aphasia so it depends which part of the brain has been affected by the stroke whether or not you go on to have aphasia and of people who have aphasia around half of them will have some kind of ongoing chronic aphasia so this is a disability that they need to find a way to live with um some yeah, most recovery occurs in the first weeks and months after the stroke, but recovery can come in different forms and different ways and many, many months later. And it's it's hard. It's a hard thing, I think, after a stroke that people work so hard, but they can never quite know. Everybody wants to go back to normal, but exactly how much recovery they're going to make is something that's quite hard for them to live with that uncertainty, I think. Um, so, yes, aphasia occurs when the, particularly in left hemisphere strokes, when the uh, parts of the brain organize and language are affected um and i think yeah, before you have a stroke people you just take language for granted it's mm. such an efficient lovely way of, of communicating and we take it completely for granted but no aphasia would be very varied so for some people it, it can really affect their um, verbal expression, but their comprehension is relatively intact. It can affect reading, it can affect writing, and it, there's different, it affects different people in different ways, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and the emotional impact is different as well. Someone can have, even what on a language test might seem relatively mild aphasia, but it makes a massive difference to them. It takes away, they can no longer remember the punchlines in the joke. They feel that they can't hold themselves up and it inhibits them from wanting to go out and about and see friends and do the activities that they used to do. So, um, yeah, how someone responds to the aphasia varies from person to person mm -hmm. as well. Um, so particularly the research we were doing was, was um, looking more the kind of longer term living well with this uh, chronic disability but, mm. yeah. uh, so uh, having a, a language disability can affect people's whole sense of who they are and, and what they, they yeah, their whole sense of identity yeah. um, so very frustrating 
Obviously, you've got a situation there where it's quite difficult for people to communicate, and, and yet you've chosen a, an approach which is really language heavy, and and the use of words and the way you phrase things and stuff is really important in that approach. So I know you said a bit about how you originally got into SF, but what is it about the approach, or what did you really like about the approach that made you decide that this is the kind of one I want to use? Because it doesn't feel like that's the most natural of approaches to use. As I said, I had had some training in SF, and I think speech and language therapists are quite drawn to SF in that they can take some of the principles and assumptions and integrate it with, with the language they're doing. So I think as a profession, we've, uh, we're, we're quite, well, we're positive about it. You know, it's quite well used. Um, and I, I think the assumptions, some of the assumptions behind it fit well with speech and language therapists. The sort of assumption that the client is the expert in their own lives. It's for them to know what's important to them. It's for them to know where they want to go with the therapy. Um, that clients have resources and talents and skills and they might not yet be very noticing of them, but it's for the therapist to nurture that and to have a belief that everyone does have the, what makes them special. And I think that fits well with speech and language therapists. Um, yeah, and listening to what's really important to someone and not prejudging what that's going to be, but mm. really valuing what's what someone says really matters to them and listening to that. And I think all that fits well with a speech and language therapist perspective of wanting to work and help people um, move forward with, with their stroke. So uh, those those assumptions fitted well for me. Um, and I, I, I found it a really rewarding therapy approach to, to deliver. Um, and I could see that it worked quite, there wasn't very much adaptation really for someone who had milder aphasia. So I gave them more time, I gave them more space, I adapted some of the question forms to be slightly simpler, but there wasn't that much adaptation. But it was, yeah, it was a challenge to, to think about solution flexibility therapy for more severe aphasia. Um, but I think I also just felt that most psychological therapies rely on language, and there is this the sense of is this a good fit if someone doesn't have very good language to work with it and I, I felt really strongly that yeah you can make it work you can make it accessible and they probably have more need than most of us to have someone who can be there with them to try and help sort of facilitate their expression to make sense for them of what, what's happened to them and to be a support for them in moving forward so mm. you know as a speech and language therapist the dual training I felt like it was it was I was I was it was a challenge that I wanted to see if I could make it work. It's funny because Ben, you were saying something similar about the the process of writing the book, wasn't you? Uh, that you were finding you having to kind of reword questions and stuff to try to take out some yeah. of the complexity in the language a little bit. Yeah, I mean the the book that we wrote, um, you know, was was targeted. We were given the, the the brief by the publisher of writing something that. Um, was was for uh, readers who had no knowledge of the solution focused approach um, wow. as a, a self help book and um, yeah we would we went through a process of trying to like um, yeah make the language more everyday make the and and I thought the solution focused was already pretty good at that like it's not that clinical it's you know fairly um, fairly straightforward questions albeit counterintuitive but so, but the more we went through the, our drafts of the book we thought gosh some of these questions are a bit weird aren't they and like you know how can we make them just more every day so um yeah I mean I've I've got a list of questions as long as my arm to ask you Sarah this is fascinating <laughs> stuff but um I guess like yeah that's that's definitely one of them you mentioned before about adaptations so you know what were the some of the sort of key adaptations that helped um and i'm also just wondering you, you sort of were talking about the, the way that it's a good fit as well with um speech and language therapists in in general and um 
we've had a speech language therapist on this podcast before who was definitely echoing that. Um, but I wonder what, what about for you personally as well? Like what made you think, yeah, this is a this is a good fit for me and who I want to be as a therapist in terms of the NSF approach. So there you go, I've squeezed two questions in there at once. <laughs> I I really love the way that you're noticing the person that you're when you meet someone you're noticing not the language disability not all the labels but you're noticing the person and what's important to them and that's just your start point and, and because you're noticing and sort of validating the person there's something um it's I, I'm always so impressed by all the people I work with, and I I love that that, that whole philosophy of, of of belief that there's belief that people have talents and skills, and that belief that there is that there there, there are ways forward as well, and that that people will have some little glimmer somewhere that can help them to move forwards, and that maybe for some of the people I meet they don't meet so many other people who have that belief but I so for me I, I find that a really lovely aspect of the sort of um sort of a bedrock underneath of, of belief in the person that you're working with that I just find is a really lovely lovely fit for what I want as a therapist um yeah does that answer your question Ben yeah definitely yeah I love that <laughs> the, way that, the way that it notices the person yeah that's great and believes in them yeah would you like me to talk a little bit more? Sorry, Beaver. Yeah, that's all right. We we tend we tend to uh, jump in and cut across each other all the time with this podcast. Don't worry. If Greg, if Greg was here, yeah, if Greg was here, you'd you'd hear me and him arguing constantly. But, um, yeah, yeah I, I, I guess the second like um, little, if I could get away with those two questions at once, the the other part two was around the adaptations. Yeah, like, sure. Know, what were some of the ways in which the approach could be made slightly more accessible? Um, sure. So, um, one of the before we got the money for the larger project, one of the things we did was we had a consultation event with people with aphasia and to ask them what they wanted us to be researching, what was important in our research. And it was that group of people with aphasia who said to me, we think it's really important you include people with very severe aphasia in your research. Mm. And I was a little bit nervous. I think this, this therapy approach is very language based and mm -hmm. it requires maybe quite a lot of language. I'm not sure it's going to work so well. And they kind of said, yeah, but on the other hand, it's really important, isn't it? <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay, you've got a, you've got a point. And as I said, you know, people with severe aphasia so often excluded from research, even aphasia research. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, you're a speech and language therapist and you've got training in solution focused pre therapy. So see what you can do. And that's the point of research. You might find that it doesn't work and that's okay too. And I kind of thought, yeah, they've got a point that <laughs> so we should try and be brave and we should try and do a little pilot with people with very severe aphasia. So that's what we did. That was our second study. Um, and that was when I was doing a diploma. So that's when I got to know Eva and Ben. Um, and we, the, the research question, I suppose, was can we adapt it to work for people with very severe aphasia and can we include them in the trial? Um, and it was really hard. I remember coming along to the diploma sessions and saying, oh, it's, it's just not working. It's really, really hard. Um, and I had to think a lot about how to, to make, I had to believe that the underlying assumptions worked really nicely for people with severe aphasia and were quite powerful. So it was how can, how can, and the solution focus has lots of lovely ways of um, enabling people to notice their resources and having them move forward. So it was how to adapt that. Um, so one thing we did was we just went through and um, we looked at the questions and kind of uh, thought about how to, to simplify them. Mm. So um, when someone has quite severe comprehension difficulties so that they, they find fast moving complex linguistic structures difficult. So it, one of the things that we did was we um, chunked things down so that we broke things down into to small little chunks, little phrases where there was only one key word that people needed to understand in each chunk. Um, and we consciously used like the present tense wherever we could and we scaffolded understanding about temporal things of the past or the future by visually, you know, with, with diaries or, or timelines. Um, 
so so like the uh, the miracle question is is typically pretty pretty complex and i would say that most people with aphasia would really struggle with it in most forms so we you know often done the brief training I, I was always quite a fan on the tomorrow question anyway we broke it down to sort of tomorrow but it's a good day what's different so it's breaking it right down into these little chunks and then we scaffolded so we would maybe look at a diary to help show the, the concept when you write down a keyword so sometimes if someone's got aphasia their auditory comprehension is quite impaired but they can be um supported and understanding by writing down a keyword sometimes they can be writing out supported with a picture sometimes they can be supported with gesture uh, I did a lot of drawing even though my drawing is terrible um, and I, some of the therapists in the project they scaffold that concept of preferred future further so they would spend quite a lot of time doing problem-free talks so they would find out well, what's what's this person like doing what are they excited by what's their you know what's their normal life look like and they might use cards to help them or things around objects around the environment for that person to show them what they like doing um, we quite often use talking mats so I don't know if you've come across so that's sort of series of cards and then once they got a better sense of the person, they might do a timeline, which they would draw out of a typical day and they would map out with that person a typical day. And then they would put in the added element of the best hopes. So if the person's focus of the therapy was, I don't know, feeling more confident, they would then look at that timeline and say, well, suppose your confidence is, is good. What, what's different on, on all the different things in that timeline? Um, and I know one of the therapists have talked about a 10 out of 10 day. Suppose this is a 10 out of 10 day, which is quite conceptually simple. You know, what, mm. what does that look like? And so they, wherever possible, we made it visual. We would have things written down. We would, we would use those terms of reference. And actually the preferred future, to be honest, is still cognitively quite complex because you're still talking about a hypothetical future state. And for some people that I work with, it wasn't helpful to them. They didn't really, they, they couldn't really access that part of the approach. So they had to be really calm and not write too much. And, um, just be quite, you know, go into other bits of the approach that work better. You know, the whole, if it's not working, do something different. So mm. there were definitely some people in the project where most, a lot of the sessions were around resource talk, noticing instances of success, noticing talking through what, what's going well. And, and maybe some problem feed talks, some acknowledgement, but not really particularly future focused. So it was quite interesting for me mm. to see that that was actually really effective. It could be for some, some people found that very helpful, those conversations. Um, we did a lot of scaling. Scaling's lovely, it's really visual. So my scales were always written out on a piece of paper. So I have to say all this project was done pre-COVID. So a lot of the visits from people's homes, which feels like such a luxury, yeah. but anyway, yeah. So we'd go, I would always write out the scale with, and I would write all the, and I might anchor with a happy and sad face at either end of the scale. I'd write the keyword, what the scale was looking at. So karma, feeling like yourself, whatever above the scale. Um, and scales generally were, was something that people could, was one person who couldn't quite manage scales, but most people in the project um, could, could manage scales. And that was a, a lovely way of them um, expressing where they were on that scale. Um, and then of course, the kind of, um, if someone did place themselves at a three out of 10, and then the question, so you're three, how come not two? It's conceptually fairly straightforward. Um, they still, there's still the issue that then that's quite an open question. And for some people, we've had very limited verbal output. That's quite difficult sometimes answering a very open question. Um, <clears throat> so then it was sort of how can we help and scaffold them provide some answers to. So I think compared to traditional solution recipe therapy, we used a lot more yes, no questions. We used a lot more sort of narrowing down to the topic, what topic they were wanting to talk about. We encouraged every, you know, very solution focused, everything that worked well for them. So if they were really good at um, their phone and pulling up photos on their phone or taking photos, there was one participant who used to take photos of some of the cooking she'd done during the week. And then she would show me on her phone the things that she felt had gone well during the week. Um, drawing, my drawing, so I would draw to sort of scaffold their understanding, but it also made it a kind of acceptable form of communication so they felt comfortable to, well, I didn't, sort of making it feel comfortable for them to draw to answer these open questions of how come a three, not a two. Mm. Um, and then co-constructing, so I remember one lady drawing her plants 
in the allotment and showing me over time how her sunflowers were getting bigger and bigger. So we sort of found ways, and sometimes we would write, write down several options, um, always with other at the bottom so they could choose from those options. So it was sort of giving them ways of expressing themselves, even if they had very limited language and objects in the environment. I mean, showing, you know, showing me that they'd from, from from if I was going into their home, they could show me their jigsaw that they just done, or they could show me the painting they just done, yeah. and then they could show me we could. Yeah, so, so I think the loveliest bit was when you kind of felt like um you were having these really lovely conversations, and the aphasia wasn't the thing. You know, the thing was the conversations rather than the aphasia. If that makes mm. sense. Yeah, definitely. Wow. May I try to compete with Ben? <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get two questions in for you, Sarah. Um, so, so your journey as a researcher on this topic and, and then a therapist began a, quite a long time ago. Was it 2013? Uh, that was when I got the money for the very first project. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, our, our listeners are, are mainly um, solution-focused practitioners interested in solution-focused approach and so forth. Um, so over those seven, eight years now, what have you been most pleased in terms of seeing um, that it worked and it works? Um, and maybe second question, when, as you said, you did, um, you, you tried and you saw how it went and then if it didn't work, you did something different. What were some maybe key innovation moments that um, maybe made you not only stick with it, but uh, take the whole uh, approach, um, work and research to the next level, if that makes sense? And what kept me going through all those different research projects? Um, yeah, I think it, it was, it was seeing the the difference it made to some of the people I was working with. I suppose that was sort of what what, what kept me going. And I, I think I'm um, I'm really proud that we for the trial where we delivered therapy to thirty people, about forty four percent of them in the end had um, severe aphasia. So I think we can say that you can adapt to psychological therapy even when someone has a severe language disability. And it's yeah. So there's a, a sense that it's, I feel that in terms of services, it's not, it's not really good enough to just say we don't, we don't really offer that kind of therapy because someone's got a language disability. I think we've sort of shown it is possible to adapt therapies for people with a language disability. So at the moment, we know that people with aphasia struggle to access mental health support. And I, hopefully this Search is a small step towards saying let's think about let's think about that a little bit more and see what we can do to enable people with aphasia to access psychological support so yeah I think that's something I feel proud about um, and in terms of yeah I guess it's, it's individuals stories that that's, that's the thing that kind of motivates me and keeps me going is where you you sort of see that it's made a difference to someone um, would you like me to share a story? Please do, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I was thinking about this gentleman because I was writing up one of the papers from the project and, and so I was I described him in, in the project. So he's um he was someone who was four years post-stroke. He lived alone, he had no family. Um and stroke coordinator was was concerned about him. So she asked me to come to the stroke group to meet him. Um and he I mean, he didn't have the most severe aphasia in the project. He, he had some language, but he experienced it as quite traumatic. And he was having panic attacks and he was shaking. Um, and he was in a quite a bad way. And he decided to take part in the research project. And we were, it, was, it wasn't that easy to include him because he um, wouldn't answer the telephone because of his aphasia. He wouldn't answer texts or emails his reading wasn't that good so we were concerned whether he would make it to the first point where so he didn't want us to come to his house um and he did and it was a really hot day and he was very disheveled and he was very shaky and i just remember that first the first um session that we we had together he um he he found it hard to talk at all because he was so upset by his aphasia and he just told me it was impossible it was all impossible 
and he told me about his experience in the hospital when he had very severe aphasia and he wasn't able to communicate anything and he had no advocates to look out for him and he felt like his whole life had just stopped and he had an operation but he didn't fully understood the, what was happening to him or had any sort of informed consent process going on there and he felt he had no agency or control about when he was discharged or how he was discharged and then he told me story after story about these awful experiences of people shouting at him or turning away from him because of his aphasia um, this was a lot of the first session um, and it seemed that these were things that he hadn't really had been in a place to tell many other people at that point because of his aphasia and because of his living situation and so we didn't we didn't cover his best hopes at all in that first session I did put in we did talk a little bit about problem free talk so we did talk about the things which gave him some kind of joy so we sort of talked a little bit through cards we were able to sort of work out that he loved loved music and I still remember talking about um Luck Ascending by Vaughan Williams and there was this lovely moment just sort of noticing that there were things which made him truly happy still in his life and that was that was our first session and I wasn't sure if he would come back and I do remember he was very disheveled and, and shaky and had a lot of panic attacks and in the second session he did come back and um, he still talked a lot about how impossible it was and the panic and the churning and how he couldn't live like this and then the great instead question so he did sort of say that he wanted to feel if asked what he wanted instead of feeling this anxiety and he said calm and so that was the focus of the sessions after that and um and then it was just so it was just this lovely noticing that solution focus was that he 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 didn't need me to tell him how to be calm he had we did this lovely list of calm of the things that he found made him calm so i it was things around the music, things around being in green spaces and birdsong and listening to birdsong. It was about how he could manage his shopping so that it was sort of methodical and he felt in control. And then he talked about his thinking and how he thought so fast and that was really difficult because then his talking got worse and his own ways of slowing his thinking and, um, and his breathing, his own ways of breathing. Um, and I remember doing this lovely list, and so each time he, we wrote down these sort of keywords of the five, five, these five things, and he, he asked to take those home. And we did a little bit around the preferred future with him, so he was able to sort of talk about, yeah, what, what breakfast would look like with the music, and what it would look like with the breeze on his face when he went from where he would go for his walk so that he felt calm, and how he would talk to the doorkeepers who were passing him, and what he would notice about himself in his stroke group. And, uh, by the time we got to the final session of the project, he just was this really calm person. <laughs> it was, and he offered me a mint and he was smiling and he was dressed differently. And I remember when the research assistant did the um, outcome measure afterwards, because I didn't do the outcome measures, um, so she met, met him for the outcome measure. And she just said, I don't know whether he's had the therapy or not, because it was a trial and she didn't, she wasn't allowed to know. But she said, I just do know that he's a completely different person. Mm -hmm. he, he just seems like a different man. And it was like he had, I mean, I don't know. It's like he'd found some pride in himself again, that somebody, that the rest of society slightly just sort of dismissed him, um, brushed him off as, as somehow slightly sort of worthless. And it was mm -hmm. impossible. And that somehow through this belief, the solution focus belief that he, there was something special about him and it was about enabling him to notice that about himself. He'd managed to somehow change his own narrative, his own story about who he was and what was important to him. Not what was important to him, because I think what was important to him didn't change, but that he'd sort mm. of enabled himself to notice that again. Um, so I guess it's stories like, and when I think, what did I do? That was particularly because of his aphasia. I mean, the main thing was just giving him time. You know, whenever he felt pressured and rushed, um, which I think he did in all medical um, mm. consultations, for example, his aphasia became so um, all-consuming for him, he could hardly talk at all. So the main thing was probably giving him time, but also noticing his strengths and communicating that he hadn't given himself any credit for. So he was really good at getting across quite complex things through gesture, 
through uh, words. He didn't have very many words, but the words he had, he could he could make his get across his point, and together we were able to construct co-construct really quite complex stuff. And yeah, um, so making gesture feel comfortable, writing down keywords, making that feel comfortable. But I think the main thing was time mm. and learning from him what was going to help him in the conversation. <clears throat> yeah, that's amazing. I'll go on, Ben. He looked primed, ready to go for the question. Before I jump. No, I yeah, I was just going to say, saying that's that's amazing, and I, I have to admit, like I was, I was smiling as as yeah. I was reading the, you know, the first little study and the reading about. There was one person who said they started taking their daughter to swimming lessons again. Someone said they were confident enough to talk to strangers. Um, some someone saying they were able to walk a bit without a walking stick, and that's it's amazing. It's yeah. It's uh, really, really put a smile on my face reading through those things and, and hearing that story. So, um, yeah, and I, I love that um, stance of, because I, I think it is, it's a difficult one, but it is a solution focused stance that if like a therapy isn't clicking, it's it's not because the client is being resistant or difficult or not able to access it it's because we haven't asked the right question or we haven't Mm. delivered it in the right way and that's really challenging for professionals like that stance of like well we need to if it's not working we need to look at ourselves not the client um but that's you know but this is the fruit of that stance is that you persevere well sarah perseveres in things like this and um, there's some great results from it Thank you, Ben. Yeah, no, it was interesting. So we interviewed the therapist at the end of the trial. So there were three of us. And um, it was it was quite interesting that they did sort of say we we knew we had to keep persevering because it was a research project. So we, we had to keep persevering, however severe their aphasia. And we found that there were ways, partly because we kept persevering and we kept believing it was going to be possible. So, yeah. Um, well, thank you all been very good listeners to me talking yeah. away. <laughs> yeah. It's really I'm impressive, w- speechless. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering whether there was any aspects that that couldn't be adapted. You know, were there were there challenges that you found really difficult to overcome, or was it a relatively easy kind of way, like translation? Um... Uh, so I would say. Um, so one of the things we did in the project was that we asked the therapists after each session to quickly fill in a checklist of what the therapy looked like. Yeah. And I've just been looking at that data and it is really interesting to see the shape of the sessions in this project compared to uh, how solution vegetable therapy might typically be. Um, so, uh, I mean, as you'd expect, the kind of best hopes that typically happened in the first session. But it's quite interesting that the preferred future rarely happened in the first session, because I think the first session, it took a whole session usually <laughs> just to, to explore with someone what they were hoping for from the therapy and maybe sort of acknowledge where they were coming from with the stroke. So that was one thing that was probably, and it didn't, and it was less likely that that was a part of the therapy at all when someone had severe aphasia. So when more severe language difficulties, that was sometimes just sometimes wasn't really a part of the approach um and then i would say another part of the approach that was particularly difficult particularly if people's sphere of phase it was the sort of third person perspective the interactional questions which i think are so lovely and i really remember them from the diploma being mm-hmm. so amazed by them and Whenever I was working with someone with milder aphasia and I could get them to work, I was always really excited. But with more severe aphasia, there was something about the language load of that third person perspective that I found really hard to get to work. So it was, I think it was a smaller part of the approach in a project than it would normally be. Mm. Um, And in terms of if there's anybody where I felt the approach just couldn't really work, um, was that part of your question as well, whether they were kind Mm. of... um, yeah, I think, so to take part in a project, people had to have mental capacity. So they had to be able to make an informed decision about, uh, you know, whether this was going to be what they wanted to do. Um, so I think really anyone with severe cognitive difficulties essentially didn't take part in our project. So I I can't, I think that would be very challenging and demanding and I, I can't really say what that would have looked like. And I wonder whether you might be working more with the family around the person. Um, as well as with the person, whether that would be a bigger part of what the therapy would look like. But as I say, it wasn't, that wasn't the case in our project. Everyone had mental capacity, so they had some 
some ability to understand it. And it was more about unmasking their competence through using gesture and drawing and writing keywords and stuff, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, so they had severe language impairment, but they didn't have severe cognitive impairment. So, okay. Okay. Um, well, maybe another adaptation of the approach. I'm not, I'm not sure if adaptation is quite the right word, but I, I do think in the project there was a greater emphasis. There, there was a conscious emphasis on acknowledgement. So um, this idea of, um, the, I think when someone has severe aphasia, they don't have so many chances sometimes to explain what it is to live with severe aphasia. And I think people wanted their therapist to hear the impact of the stroke and the impact of the aphasia and what it was like to be them. So yeah. um, I think that had, that we, we thought, well, we consciously set out with the training of the therapist and stuff that that should be a component of the therapy and an important component, um, as well as the more future focused and resource based aspects. Cool. Uh, Greg has um, messaged one of his questions, Jamie. Okay. Did you, yeah, yeah. He he really wanted to yeah. um, to hear this, didn't he? Jamie, <laughs> did, have you got it? Yeah. Well, that was my next thing. That's my next question. I'll give uh, Greg the credit for this one. Um, for those, for those people that are listening to this who find this very interesting uh, mm -hmm. but aren't working with people in the, in the situation that you've kind of talked about, um, is there anything that you've learned from this research or from you know, being involved in it that you would say we can learn in just in general, the way that we work with people, even if they haven't suffered a stroke or struggling with asphasia? Uh, in terms of what we've learned about the therapy approach? Mm. Well... Yeah, so I suppose one thing that I might say is that I think I was quite inspired going on to play my course, this idea of detailed descriptions and the power of detailed descriptions and how that can make uh, possibilities seem more vivid and more possible. <laughs> um, and we haven't been able to do that with any of the people that we've worked with. So we they're, they're not in a position to give us detailed descriptions. And as I've said, there are some of the people we've worked with, they're also not really particularly in a position to talk about hypothetical futures. That's very hard for them. And yet they've still found it. They've still found benefit from the approach. So um, I don't, and I don't know quite what that, whether that's about a shifting narrative or about feeling sort of validated and noticed as a person, or whether there's something incredibly powerful about those underlying assumptions that, you know, that they're the expert in their life and that someone's mm. noticing that and someone's respecting that, and someone's listening to their hopes, um, you know, in, in a quite a non-judgmental way and, and respecting that they have the right to hope for whatever they want to hope for and, and, and listening to those hopes and notice, helping them to notice their own resources and talents and skills and that's that can be very powerful um yeah so i don't know whether that quite mm. answers the question um yeah that's great hmm. so where to next for you sarah <laughs> yeah. what's next so um yeah research is quite a long old process so <laughs> i've done these um three projects and at the end, so the very first one, as I say, was this little proof of concept, can it work at all for some of the language um, ability? The second one was, can it work with people with very severe aphasia? And then the, more recently, we've done the um, randomized control trial. And the, um, the, the control trial uh, was with 32 people. And it was a feasibility trial. So it's under power to um, determine whether it's an effective approach, which is I know that's really frustrating for clinicians and it's, you know, kind of like, gosh, that's four years of my life. And I still at the end of it, I don't have the numbers to be able to say this definitely works. We have some really promising trends, but to take it to the next stage, you do a definitive trial and that would be more like 200 people. And at that point you can start to say, um, it's clinically effective in a statistical sense. Um, so I think we've got a lot of strong evidence that people really value this therapy approach and it's possible to make it work for people with um, significant language disabilities. And it's possible for speech and language therapists to deliver it as well, which is another really lovely outcome of the study. And they've got some really promising statistics, but as my statistician keeps telling me, um, we can't over extrapolate from the numbers that we have from this project. And we, um, yeah, so that would be one next step, Viva. So that's quite a daunting mm -hmm. next step. That's, that's quite a massive project. So. Um, 
<laughs> but um, this project, so this project was, yeah, it was, it was paving the way for that really. It was asking, is it possible to recruit people into this study? Have we got the right outcome measures? the right training and support for the therapists? Um, do people like, the, like the, the project enough to want to stay in it? And we had really nice results. So it was, it was we had lovely buy-in from the sites. Speech and language therapists are keen on this approach. They were keen on the project. They were really happy to help us recruit. So we recruited without problems. And we had very good follow-up. So we had, yeah, so 97% of people were followed up at six months, which is our primary comparison point. So that's a very high level of follow-up. So in terms of, um, we, we, we ticked all the right boxes for a feasibility study to pave the way for a, for a bigger trial. But it's a long process. <laughs> yeah. It's exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a nice, nice way of looking at it. Rather than <laughs> it's really daunting. Yeah. Um, well, if people wanted to kind of find out any more or, or read anything, that, you know, your paper or anything like that, is that something that people can do? And where would you kind of send them if they were really interested in this and your research? Where would they go? Oh, that's a lovely question. Um, so we, there's two papers at the moment with two different journals under peer review and the third paper on its way so those that's from the trial that's our findings from the trial so that will be hopefully in the next couple of months they will be in press and available for everyone who wants to read them um i there is a project blog uh, which is a little which i need to update but i will try and make sure i put those papers on that project blog um and i am on twitter as well so i do let people know when yeah. things have come out Absolutely. on Twitter. Um, Where will people? How will people find you on Twitter? Is that just your? Uh, so I'm at Sarah Northcott Eight. Okay. <laughs> so that's my okay. Twitter handle. Okay. Um, and the project blog, if they just type in Sophia Aphasia. So the project was called Sophia. So that was Solution SO from Solution Focused Grief Therapy in. That comes okay. out of Sophia. Because if you type in Sophia, you come up with the city rather than my project. But if you type in <laughs> Sophia or Aphasia, it should come up with a blog. Brilliant. Excellent. Yeah, we'll definitely we'll put we'll put that information in the description within the podcast Aww. as well, so people can easily get there and find out more. So thank yeah. you. No thank worries. you for your thank work. You. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. Great. Have you have you enjoyed the, the process of the research or has it been too much stress to be able to enjoy has it been fun oh that's a nice question so i think it, <laughs> to be honest answer is it's got its ups and downs it's um <laughs> yeah. it's um quite full-on and it's quite a lot of knockbacks and it's hard to get mm. funding and um it's quite hard i found it quite hard to go from sometimes going from a research hat to a therapist hat um so it's a very different way of thinking about the world. It's a different. It's like a different language, and I had to sort of go from one to the other. And I, and solution focus doesn't necessarily dovetail that neatly into some of the sort of research ways of thinking. Like people are always sort of saying, well, "What's what's the dosage?" And I was sort of thinking, "Well, that is not quite how it works in solution focused mm -hmm. therapy." Um, and it's always a bit of a dilemma what to do about a control group. I, I find that very hard. So yeah, there's some challenges. Um, and, but it's really, it is really fascinating. I mean, it's just amazing to be able to look at all this interview data with all these participants about what they thought about the therapy. I mean, it, it's yeah. a real insight into it, which is lovely. And um, I find that really exciting, looking at people's interviews and trying to see the patterns and make sense of it. And it's, it's also, it's exciting when you do the statistics as well, and then looking to see how they make sense from one to the other. And yeah, so it's, um, it's fantastic. I wouldn't change it at all. Uh, and I was very lucky because I still kept going with doing some of the therapy. A lot of researchers um, become a bit more removed from the therapy, but I've always been lucky in that I've always done some of the therapy myself and I've done some of the interviews myself. So I feel that I've sort of kept quite grounded in what the therapy feels like, what it looks mm -hmm. like, and, and people with aphasia, which kind of keeps you going, I think. Because I think if I didn't have that contact with people with aphasia, it, I'd find it harder. Although, I mean, I do love the research processes. Um, you know, I do really enjoy looking at the interview data and the statistics as well. So, um, mm. yeah, it, it's a nice combination. It's just sometimes it feels a bit, <laughs> a bit much. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That's particularly when you're also homeschooling. It feels like quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I imagine. Wow. What, what's your kind of, um, I was about to ask exactly a solution-focused one then. Um, if okay. it, this is obviously, you know, you're saying this is, it's tough sometimes and stuff. What is the thing that kind of keeps you motivated? long-term hope 
what is it you're hoping to really achieve like with this research yeah no it's nice to think like that sometimes isn't it i think i would really like to shift people's thinking into thinking it is possible for people with aphasia to access psychological therapies that yeah um and that that's 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 the presumption so in stroke care that's the presumption that um psychological therapies are, are, are equitably given to people with and without aphasia um and that some of those really lovely assumptions of solution focused therapy can they, i think speech therapists almost feel a kind of relief when you talk about it that it's okay it's okay that you can prioritize the person it's okay that you can spend time listening to what's important to them and that to make that part of the culture that that's okay um and i and, it, and it's okay to work on the things which actually matter to the person rather than what you think you should be doing and it's okay for your assessments to be that rather than you coming in as the expert, expert and doing x y and z assessment and then planning a, a sort of a series of, of work for that person that you come in thinking well what, what what really matters to this person um and what's going to be a helpful way forward for them and i think that's quite I think if, if that that's got, I think that is shifting as a culture within stroke care. But if that could shift even more, I think that would be brilliant. So um, if I can contribute towards that, that'd be great. And obviously, it'd be nice if I could do the definitive trial and say definitively, <laughs> yeah, this 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 therapy works. And maybe within solution focus as well to just. I think I'm a, quite a big believer in this acknowledgement possibility and this one foot in acknowledgement, one foot in possibility and to give ourselves space as a solution focused practitioners that that's okay too, it's okay to give space to acknowledging and that's an important part of the process I think as well so um, yeah that's my, that's my wish list of different things. Yeah well, brilliant, you said you're playing a small part in it but it sounds like quite a significant part to me so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, um, really good work. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, thank, well, thank you for coming on podcast and talking about it. We'll, we'll no doubt get lots of questions and stuff. So, are you happy for us to direct just general questions if anyone's interested in? Yeah, you know, for sure. Yeah, towards you on your Twitter handle and stuff. Yeah, okay. that's fine. Um, yeah, for sure. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. And the, and the internet, the internet so held much. out by some miracle. Yeah. So. It was quite smooth, wasn't it? Good, it was good. Well, perhaps in the future, when you've got further along with the the other projects and stuff, we have to have you back on. Definitely. Yeah. As always, thank you for listening to this episode. We love to get some feedback about how we're doing and how we can make this better. So check us out on social media and also have a look at all the training that we're offering at sfpossibilities.org. We'll see you next time.